Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. Today's guest is a TV legend. She's dominated our screens in the 80s and 90s on shows like Treasure Hunt and Challenge Annika, attracting audiences of more than 11 million. 30 years on, her popularity is still right up there, whether it's on Strictly, Celebrity Bake Off, Mastermind, her Radio 2 show, and much, much more. I am, of course, talking about the lovely Annika Rice. In 1990, Annika helped draw the world's attention to the plight of thousands of orphans living in abject poverty and horrendous conditions in state-run institutions in Romania. And she's recently been back to meet some of the children she helped save. Annika, thanks so much. I feel a bit choked up now having just read that about the orphans. Thank you so much for joining me today. You have been so busy. You've got all sorts of things cooking. But can we start off with Romania and your trip back? Oh, the challenges, a lot of them have been celebrating uh, 30 years. There's over 60 or so projects uh, around the world. And I'm in touch with most of them, to be fair. And Romania, I've stayed very in touch with, particularly over the 30 years. But in fact, all the challenges, I'm very involved with them still because they weren't, you know, when they took place around 30 years ago, they weren't just a quick fix paint job or whatever. They were really very involved projects that affected many people's lives and thousands of volunteers. So with Romania, for example, I've always been very involved with since the original challenge because I felt a sense of guilt in a way that I changed so many people's lives in the UK. For example, the lady who set us the challenge, who was a school teacher in Solihull, Monica McDade, and she innocently wrote, you know, dear Challenge Annika, I've been out to Romania with a van full of blankets and I found this terrible, I mean, we all almost call it a concentration camp because it was nearly 700 children just kept in sort of battery conditions, sharing cots, shaved heads, you know, rocking, not picked up at all. And because of her, we all went out, the whole UK was sort of galvanised to get involved and we were donated aeroplanes kit, everything. And we all went out and we just found this terrible, terrible situation. And after the challenge finished, after this sort of fraught, awful two weeks out there where we realised we couldn't even begin to help the children until we'd actually tried to just get involved with the whole town because everything we took out was just being stolen because the locals had nothing either. They'd just come out of communist regime and you know, there's no infrastructure in Romania. It was a desperate situation. So the project was sort of bigger than the orphanage, which was a, another story in itself. Monica realised she had to give up her entire life in the UK. Yeah, I'm practically joking. I'm not talking about it. She had to give up her life as a school teacher, all her family in the UK, and stay in Romania to coordinate this project, you know, which has gone on for 30 years. So apart from the work with the kids in the, the orphanage, you know, trying to repair the orphanage, there was no electricity. There was just raw sewage running down corridors. The children were kept in the basement, the tiny children, you know, in cots, three to a cot. Apart from that, the team started helping the town. They got the water system going. They worked on the old people's home. And those volunteers, 30 years on, are still financing themselves to go out and help that town. And those kids who are now all in their 30s and 40s. And the charity we set up built halfway houses. So the luckier kids who could be saved, because many were just 
really very, very damaged. You know, they've learned farming skills. Some of them have got married to each other. You know, there's some lovely stories that come out of it, but it was also a really desperate situation. And so that was definitely not a, a quick fix challenge, you know, and it stayed ingrained in us. All the crew, we were very, very traumatised by what we saw. It's obviously had a profound effect on you. And I can't imagine what it was like, Annika, when you arrived there and walked in to be greeted by some of the scenes you shared with us on television and probably some of the scenes that may have been too distressing to share. Yeah, no, we couldn't show a lot of it. And I just had a baby, you know, so I left behind a little milky, happy, cared for baby. Well, obviously I wasn't there. (laughs) Abandoned baby, no. (laughs) Went to Romania. So, you know, I was quite hormonal anyway. And, you know, I was just very locked into the care of small children and babies. So it was very traumatizing. But also there were lots of projects that had a similar impact on all of us. We did a project in Croatia, for example, just after the Homeland War, where, you know, towns had been decimated again. And we tried to sort of rebuild the village school, which had just been decimated, as I say. And all the time we had Serb snipers trained on us. We had to be protected by the UN. And we all wrote letters and left them in our hotel room in case we didn't make it out. So it was a very sort of fraught programme to do, is all I can say. And, you know, we did over 60 projects in the UK and it it definitely got to the point where at the end of those several years of doing these projects, we were just sort of exhausted actually (laughs) by the whole thing. And also the aftercare of them all, I sort of kept in touch with all of them. So it's sort of my life's work in a a way. And we also sold the format because I I, I devised the format, you know, that's sold around the world. I think, Um, didn't Erin Brockovich front it for you in Challenge America? Yeah, ABC wanted to do a lovely post-11 project, which was making a peace garden for the farmen, you know, the families of the farmen who'd lost um, loved ones in 9-11. And they decided Erin Brockovich would be a you know, great person to be me. But Erin hadn't done that kind of live TV off-the-cuff stuff. So I was sent out to give Erin a very condensed presenting <laughs> seminar we, we just it was so fun she's such a great woman we went into Central Park and I was trying to teach her how to be a television presenter and pretending to be people coming up and offering to help and, you know <laughs> and it was absolutely mad and then she had to work out what to wear and you know so challenge has brought so many layers of extraordinary things in my life and all those amazing people I love I mean there's a nun who runs a disabled riding school in Wormwood Scrubs in a very deprived part of London called Sister Mary Joy. And I just love my emails from Sister Mary Joy because, again, we bonded so much. We built an indoor arena for her, a riding school, so that kids could carry on learning to ride and be on a horse when the weather was terrible. I mean, if you've ever seen an autistic child very troubled by their surroundings and unable to feel comfortable, get on a pony And the transformation is extreme. You know, suddenly there's a a calmness and ponies have this extraordinary way of helping children and adults. So, you know, one of the the kids who set us the challenge, you know, 30 years ago is now an adult in his 40s, still using that indoor arena. But Sister Mary Joy and I bonded so much because we went into Wormwood Scrubs prison to get some volunteers 
back in the day when you just could drive a buggy into a prison and ask the governor, have you got anyone who could help us with this challenge? And he gave us three prisoners who got in the back of the buggy and we all drove back to the site. And I just looked over my shoulder and said, what are you all in for? And they went, murder. Went, Great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sister Mary Joy kept in touch with those prisoners afterwards. So that's what I mean about the layers of involvement and, you know, reconciliation and repair that a lot of these projects did in quite a meaningful way. And of course, not all of the challenges went to plan, did they? I'm thinking about a white horse. (laughs) Not all the challenges went to plan. Well, actually, they were all finished in the end. But the white horse is one that the press always loves to bring up, which we have to sort of take the blame and responsibility for everything, obviously. But that was one of the first challenges we did in the very first series. And we blithely just accepted the advice of the council and planning permission people. We just took what they said verbatim. So if they said you need Portland stone to put on the white horse, we sort of believed them and presumed that was right. And of course, it ended up being the wrong sort of stone. So we acted in utter good faith on advice, but it made us realise for the series going on that we had to get our own team in to absolutely verify all these things because, you know, we at the end of the day, I'm at the top of that pyramid, if you like, so I get all the flack. So no, the white horse was unfortunately not the right stone, which is a shame because also I nearly broke my back doing that. Did you? Oh no, how? No, not literally. Not literally. literally. Lugging this stone and trying to, got the local scouts involved. It was chaos and um, my back's never quite recovered and then all for nothing, but never mind. Do you know one thing? You win some, you lose some. Yeah, but you know, most of them were absolute wins. And I think it's really lovely to know that way, way after the cameras stopped rolling, those projects continued, they continue on today. And and as you say, it's probably been much of your life's work, which is really down to you. And the one thing when I was researching you that I didn't realise is that it was your idea. Challenge Annika was your creation. It came off the back of the success of Treasure Hunt, didn't it? But what gave you the idea to do Challenge Annika? Do you know what? It was just seeing the extraordinary reaction that Treasure Hunt had with the population. It was for the first time a woman was centre stage in control calling the shots. You have to think back to TV all through the sort of 70s and and 80s. And basically women on television were either draped over a car in a bikini on a quiz show selling the prize. I'm not joking. No, I know you're not. Or we were used to page three girls in the sun, or they were part of a news team behind a desk. And you never saw a woman getting up and doing anything very interesting. And so I think Treasure Hunt, and I was just lucky that I was chosen to be the the woman that sort of started that whole new wave of TV, just showed A, the power of TV, and B, what it could do. And I just thought, God, all that energy and the technical things and the backbreaking work that goes into making Treasure Hunt. And then, yeah, it's great, but it's over and we move on to the next one. What if we put all that energy and people's absolutely love for the programme into something that had an end result, you know, really shining a spotlight on things that needed to be done, but harnessing that power of TV for the common good. And I just wrote this format and went in to see Michael Grade, who was then fronting up that department at the BBC. And he just immediately looked at me and said, yeah, do it. And, you know, which was a big step for the BBC to take because 
it was a format on a piece of paper when I made an appeal for help because this was before Google and being able to use the internet. We had to sort of, you know, it was difficult to get the message out to people if we needed help. We didn't know whether people would respond or whether this lovely project on a piece of paper, like the Romanian orphanage, would just stay a project because actually three people turned up with half a blanket. You know, we just didn't know. But it did work and it worked in spades because at the end of the day, people just love being part of something bigger than themselves. They want to help. They want to do something. And that's what we tapped into. But we didn't really know how it was going to work, but thankfully it did. You say there that, of course, you know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't social media, but you launched it in what in those days was a very high profile way because I remember seeing you, I think you were on the Wogan show, weren't you, in your infamous jumpsuit, sitting with Terry Wogan, getting your first challenge. So it was launched in a very high profile fashion. What was that first challenge that Terry set you? Well, the first challenge was part of Children in Need and it was a sort of experiment just to see whether it would work as a concept. So it was something ridiculous. We had to put on a concert in the middle of the River Thames to the accompaniment of the 1812 orchestra. There had to be fireworks and ice skaters on a sort of specially constructed frozen rink on the Thames. I mean, it was just, it's almost as if the producers had just pulled out of the air the most ridiculous combination of things they could find. And then it was, okay, off you go. And because I had the children in need inserts, I could dip into a part of children in need to say, help, we need some ice skaters. We need an orchestra. You know, where's Henry Mancini? Come and help. You know, because I could tap into all that live stuff going on anyway with Children in Need, it did work. And, and hilariously, it all sort of came together. And that made us feel a bit more confident that if we embarked on a series, we would get that help because it's a program about community. It's about a community of volunteers, which is just such a heartwarming thing. And I think in COVID, the way that scientific community, I mean, I literally love Sarah Gilbert. She's my heroine of all time. I love her, love that woman. But the way that scientific community rose superbly to the COVID challenge was extraordinary. It just showed what can be done if people work together in the face of such a terrible challenge as, as COVID. All those things, that was a huge example of community working together, but we were just, you know, showing a, a smaller way of, of doing that. I think COVID has shown that we're all ready. We want to help. We want to do stuff now. Let's get the UK moving again. I know how important community is and you do so many things behind the scenes that rarely publicise, but one of the things I do know that you do is you spend a lot of time with very elderly people. I watched a clip of you on television. I'm trying to find their names now. Was it Silvana and another lady? Oh, Stefania. Stefania and Sylvia. Yeah. Oh, yes, the, I'm a befriender. I look after elderly people in my local community, which is a very easy thing to do. And I really recommend it to people. It can either be just a phone call or meeting up. I looked after Stefania for a few years, but she sadly passed away now. And I just really enjoyed my time with her because my big thing about elderly people is we just mustn't see them as these elderly people. I think Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club has shown that we've got to look behind the silver hair. And Stefania, for example, you know, she'd been a prisoner of war in Poland. She had the most extraordinary life. Another elderly lady is a brilliant artist. She's exhibited at the Royal Academy. No one knows the, these things about these extraordinary elderly people. So I'm really enjoying 
that side and in a way sort of shining a spotlight on their life and giving them the platform they deserve because otherwise they just get lumped together, don't they, as sort of elderly people. And my local community association in Barnes in southwest London is amazing the way it just scoops up everyone and gives them a voice and, you know, makes their later years in life very worthwhile. I mean, it's a great thing befriending. I mean, you get so much out of it. Sometimes they've come to lunch and we have a lovely day. I put my speaker in the middle of the table and we go around the table and say, you know, what do you fancy playing at your funeral? Because I'm a great believer in speaking about death. <laughs> Not in a morbid way, in a really celebratory way. And so we've gone through these lovely sort of times where we've discussed funerals and what they'd like to listen to. And when that music comes out of that little black speaker, they've just been absolutely entranced because it swells the room. And it's been very emotional and lovely to talk about their favourite music, for example. The only reason I mentioned elderly people then is because you mentioned COVID, because I think that has been one of the positives. We as a family have looked after two 90-year-old neighbours we already yeah. knew, but, you know, we've been shopping for them and doing various things. And, you know, Robin's a former judge and it turned out in his young days as a barrister, he represented one of the craze at the inquest of his mother. Yeah. And so all these stories have come out because we've been delivering food to their door and chatting about, you know, what they yeah. need. They make me laugh with their food orders. You know, it's like 10 bananas, too ripe, too not so ripe, too green. It's, it's been very, very specific. To, to build up. Yeah, totally get that. And I just hope that sort of continues because just because COVID is over, why should we not actually interact with our neighbours exactly. and our community? Exactly. And, and I, also, I really, sorry, carry on. You know, I was just going to say, and also to remember that there are just in a few years time, we'll, we'll hopefully all be elderly and people won't look at us as an old person, but as the person we really are, who's just aged a bit. Exactly. And sadly, both my parents had terrible Alzheimer's. And so I've got involved with Alzheimer's Research UK because, again, that was a real example of how you need to see the person beyond the illness. That seems so unfair. It's such a terrible illness. One in three people born in the UK today will get dementia in some form. There's new technologies coming out and um, there was something about AI, wasn't there, uh, recently in the press. But it's, it's just such a desperately painful illness to, to witness your loved ones going through. But there is great support out there. And I just hope people find that support. When my father first got the symptoms of Alzheimer's in about 2005, and I know the, the date because I was doing some challenge specials at the time. And suddenly I had my dad, who usually in his late 80s was totally in control and everything, suddenly totally confused. And I'd have the police ringing me at sort of 2am saying, your dad says you've just been kidnapped by terrorists. And I'd go, no, I'm fine. And I spent the whole time on the motorway going back and forth, not understanding myself what he was going through. I'd get him round to the house and all the time he'd think he was in a health club. I mean, it was bittersweet. It was really mostly quite sweet, though terribly sad because he had a very sort of benign sort of Alzheimer's. So it was very gentle. We'd have to pretend we were in a health club and we were waiting to go swimming together because my dad and I, well, uh, in his earlier years, we shared a great love of fitness and we'd go to health clubs together. So he clocked in with that, but was very confused. So we'd always be sitting in the waiting room with dad, waiting to go into the sauna 
in fact, obviously, we were just sitting at home. And he came to live with us for a while, but I didn't quite know what was going on. I didn't know you could just ring up a charity and, and, and get help because this was a whole new thing to me. And the whole family was very good for my three young children at the time because we just learned to absorb in, into the community in our house. So I'd be cooking in the kitchen and I'd say to Thomas, where's granddad, darling? And he'd say, oh, he's just next door talking to the cushion. And I'd just go, great. And we just carry on. <laughs> it just became totally normal. And my most touching moment with my dad, because we, apart from the fitness thing, we shared a great love of DIY and paint because he was in the building business. So I spent my childhood concrete factories with him. And so I, I found there's a real way to communicate with him was through paint swatches, Dulux paint swatches. Yep. So we'd spend hours looking at the colours going, that's a nice blue. What about a jumper in that, Dad? Or that yellow, that's wrong for the loo wall, don't you think? And we just spent hours doing this every day. And one day I just said to him, Dad, what do you think my name is? And he looked at me for a long time and went, Dulux? And I was oh. thrilled by that in a weird sort of way. You know, it still chokes me up. But what I'm saying with Alzheimer's, it's such an unknown illness and you have to sort of find ways, as I found ways with my elderly friendies, to tap into their world, not see things from your point of view. And research is so important. Alzheimer's Research UK, I'm familiar with their work. And in fact, we did a podcast a few months ago with Hilary Evans, who leads Alzheimer's Research UK. And they are making incredible progress in identifying those of us who may suffer with Alzheimer's in later life, but identifying things 20 years before the symptoms show. So I, I think AI technology they're using, the scientists that they've got... It's a charity that needs championing. I think. It really does. Because if you think of all the way that Sarah Gilbert and her team and AstraZeneca, it was just amazing to watch the way with absolutely a complete focus on one subject, you can get something sorted. I mean, that just really was extraordinary. I, don't, I just don't think people actually realise how extraordinary it was to get that vaccine out in, in that such a record time. So imagine if you could, you know, absolutely put all your energies into Alzheimer's or cancer. You know, yeah. that's what I feel now energies should go into. We shouldn't lose sight of what an absolute human extraordinary effort that all was. It's true now, isn't it, about pulling together, making things happen. Did you say mum suffered too, Annika, from, from yes, Alzheimer's? No, so the, the moment my parents didn't live together. So, you know, the, the, the thing with my dad sort of seemed to just go on for years. It just didn't know what to do. And it was only when I, I had to, in the end, get a carer in to look, look after him and, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to throw some money at the problem, but it did make me very anxious to think of people who didn't have that option and what options there are. I just didn't think of ringing Alzheimer's research. You know, I just didn't know almost what he had. But then my mum developed more or less the day of my dad's funeral. My mum suddenly developed the same symptoms. And that time round, I was just, I'd educated myself. You know, I'd had sort of a decade of knowledge or looks like less than a decade so I was sort of better able to equip myself to help with my mum but it's a very lonely experience if you're the carer that family unit feels very isolated and bewildered and frightened so reach out to Alzheimer's research reach out to those organizations because they're there to support you and that was what I just didn't do at the time. 
But as you say, now you know, and through people like you with a high profile being part of charities like that, then it'll help thousands of other people because it helps get the message out there. They've got some fantastic supporters, Samuel L. Jackson, Stephen Fry, all helping to get that message and all with very personal reasons. Samuel L. Jackson has a lot of dementia and Alzheimer's in his family and speaks beautifully Mm. from the heart when he talks about what he's gone through. And I think you being involved will be a massive, massive help. I spent some time with you last summer, which was really, really lovely when we were down on the Isle of Wight. And I didn't realise, Annie, what a talented artist you are. You've got paintings all over the place and you do some wonderful painting. Does that help you switch off? And has that been a bit of a salvation through some difficult times? Painting, I think anything creative is an amazing thing to tap into. And you don't even have to be very good to really get something out of it. I mean, I didn't even learn arts at school. You know, it just wasn't something I didn't even know whether there was an art room at school I went to. I certainly never went there. It was only in my 20s that I took up a paintbrush because my husband gave me a book called Step by Step Art School, An Easel and a Smock. I just wanted to become a, you know, a bit more creative. I was so busy working. I was either flinging myself out of a helicopter or traveling the world on Wish You Were Here, the holiday program. And I, I, you know, I was really, really very busy. And I found that painting became this great antidote because I would just sit and paint for hours on end, teaching myself, going through this book, you know, lesson one. And I sort of taught myself to get to a point where I didn't feel quite so embarrassed about it all. But all the tribes you discover in life, I think are the things that make life go round. So, you know, I've got my TV tribe, all my Challenge Annika crew, because we're all very bonded still. Got different sort of tribes for different things. And my painting tribes have been the most touching, I think, in my entire life. The group I work with at the moment is Maggie Hambling's Masterclass Tribe. (laughs) And I just love all those people. You know, Maggie Hambling is the most amazing artist. And I was interviewing her. And at the end of the interview, she's quite fierce and she chain smoked. She was saying, can you get out of everyone? I've got to get ready for my masterclass. And I just went up to her and said, can I come? She looked at me for about 10 minutes. And then she wrote that on a piece of paper, 10 o'clock, bring charcoal. And that was it. I've been, I've, I've just snuck in imposter to this amazing masterclass based with Maggie Hambling, our greatest living artist. And I'm so lucky. I do keep quite quiet at the back so that she doesn't notice actually that I'm not quite at the same level as everyone else. But that tribe again is really special, really, you know, very, very touching. It's like a book club. It's when you're a young mum at school, you have your tribe at the school gate, don't you? You do. All those communities, they become your family, basically. I am going to send you a print of Maggie Hamblin, which was taken by Nicola Bensley, who is a wonderful black and white portrait artist. And she loves art. And Maggie invited her around to take a photograph of her. And the picture, Maggie's oh. lying on the floor, chain smoking. With a um, cigarette. With a cigarette. So I've heard yeah. lots of Maggie Hamblin stories, and I can, although I've never met her, but I can see why you're so excited to be in oh, her. Oh, she's, she's just extraordinary. And, and the fierceness is just, she is fierce because she cares and is passionate, but also one of the most humane, kind person as well you know once you you get to know her she's she's an amazing person but that also says how you have to slightly go out of your comfort zone often in life and be quite fearless so if I hadn't dared to say can I come can I join Maggie and expect to be rebuffed 
you've got to put yourself out there, haven't you, to sort of move face along, I always think. You have. I love your life drawings and you made me howl. Oh, would, would I lie to you about beautiful Roy? Roy. Tell me about beautiful, beautiful Roy. Roy naked well, in your kitchen. <laughs> yeah, beautiful Roy. He's part of my painting tribe because he's often the model. And I met him in Maggie's life drawing masterclass and I became very friendly with Ron and his husband Leo and they're great great friends of mine now and they often come around to my house and Roy sometimes you know takes his kit off and we do a bit of painting and have a cup of tea you know it's so normal to me all this life drawing almost seems weird if someone turns up at the house and actually keeps their clothes on <laughs> anyway would I lie to you seized on this story and so my would I lie to you lie was they bring a, a human being of on sometimes and you have to invent three stories around them and, and beautiful Roy was there with his clothes on and my lie or truth was this is beautiful Roy I sometimes paint naked in my kitchen so of course it was a truth and in fact on Instagram you'll see I put a little video of Roy quite recently because he was staying with me and indeed, he was naked again in the kitchen. <laughs> That's absolutely so brilliant. his bottom is in full view. And he's, oh, he's beautiful. He's a beautiful, beautiful soul. I've seen sometimes on your Instagram, you say sometimes when you've got an issue to deal with, you might just paint a cow or a camel or yeah. something. So I can see yeah. that that's a good, it's a good de-stressor, isn't it, painting? It's a great de-stressor because it's so, so takes up your mind. And during lockdown, I did a lot of Zoom life drawing. So there might be Emmanuel in Milan. Ooh, and I'd sounds draw nice. him with a bottle of wine, you know, and it just is such a lovely thing to do and not worry how good or bad you are or how good or bad you think you are. And I've learned that because I always used to be so judgmental of myself and agonised. And the best thing anyone ever taught me to do, actually, when they saw me freeze in front of a big piece of white paper with a pencil, was to send me out into the garden and choose a twig. And I still paint with a twig and ink. Do that's, how I do my, that's how I do my quick life drawings. I use the end of a stick or I don't ever do anything that'll make it too neat. You often paint as your personality is and I'm so sort of quick, you know, I almost have to be against the clock. You know, I need a commission. I need someone to say, can you do this portrait of my granny by next Tuesday? Fine. If they say, just do a portrait of my granny in the next five years, won't be able to do it. And I love doing very quick life drawing poses that take about two minutes or one minute, you know. And I dip it into some ink, wet my paper and just see where the lines go. That's how I paint. God, I got a great tip. I was actually weirdly on a hen weekend and the man arrived with no clothes on and we were instructed to, to draw him. The top tip was if you're right-handed, draw him with your left hand. Left. Yeah, yeah, because your yeah. right hand will yeah. draw what you think you're seeing, whereas your left hand, if you're not left handed yeah. will draw what you're actually I thought that was quite a good tip I've taught lots of my friends to paint and or to have a go you know because they've just gone oh god I couldn't do that and they've all been absolutely thrilled and sort of framed what they've done because actually it's totally subjective that's the great thing about painting is no two paintings should ever really look the same once they all start to look the same they're rubbish as far as <laughs> I'm concerned they should all have an imprint of what you've bought yes to that piece of paper otherwise what's the point you might as well take a photograph yeah exactly so well, once, my you, once you get that in your head it doesn't matter 
One of my favourites that you did not too long ago was your painting of Prulise, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, that was, you met her, obviously you met her because you did fabulously well on Celebrity Bake Off, but uh, did Prue like what you drew? Well, first of all, I did one of Paul Hollywood, you'll see on Instagram, which was part of my baking challenge. So I had to do some shoe pastry. So I decided to do dollops and dip them in paint and put them on a palette. And then I also painted a watercolour ahead of uh, Paul Hollywood and put it on an easel. So that was my creation for Bake Off. And and then at the same time, I thought I'd just slip in one of Prue, which was start naked of her, apart from the red glasses just sneaking out. So they didn't show that on Bake Off. They showed the Paul Hollywood portrait because that was actually part of the creation. But at the last minute, I flipped out Prue and said, here you are, Prue, what goes on in the green room stays in the green room. (laughs) And they cut that out. I don't know why. Maybe it was because she was naked. Because she loved it. But it was abstract. Both she and Paul asked for their paintings afterwards. So you couldn't not love the one of Prue. Do have a look on Instagram. She's just looking foxy. I have such a fierce love Prue. Did you have a bit of a girl crush on Prue? Girl crush all the way through. Any time she was coming to my bake-off station, I practically swooned and collapsed. (laughs) She's amazing. And how did you enjoy the whole experience in the bake-off tent? It was very, very weird for me because they asked me to do it with only about 10 days notice. So they asked me to do it in the morning and in the afternoon they were ringing up to say, what would you like to bake? I hadn't even had time to think about it. So in the corner of the room, there was a picture of me on top of a mountain being winched off a helicopter. And I just thought, that'll do being winched off a helicopter, maybe my kids in the helicopter because they've never really known what my job was. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought, painting, I just blurted out these ideas and then thought, how on earth am I going to actually carry this off? So the whole build-up to Bake Off was not about learning to cook or bake a cake. It was the construction of how the helicopter could be on a plinth that I could be winched down from. That's what all my energy went into because that's the bit I like. I like the making of it rather than the the doing. And you won, didn't you? You were crowned the winner. I don't think winning is really the word, (laughs) honestly. I mean, I won the signature challenge at one point and had a mouthful of what I'd made afterwards and it was honestly (laughs) disgusting. You, You couldn't really eat much of what any of us painted. <laughs> Only one, because Paul loved the portrait I painted. Uh, he really loved it. He wanted to give it to his mum. So I knew once he'd seen that portrait, I was going to win because I said, let's discuss it after the show. So he had to make me win, otherwise he wouldn't have got portrait. <laughs> was the inference. <laughs> I love finding out things, Annika, that I didn't know about people before, you know, before we do these chats. And when you talk about helicopter and winching, one of the things I didn't know is that you were in wax at Madame Tussauds, weren't you, being winched uh, off a helicopter or something? I was the first thing bemused Japanese tourists saw as they walked into Madame Tussauds. I was hanging from a floating ladder above the foyer in my jumpsuit. Oh my goodness, they must have thought, what is this? Of course, the British audience or, you know, people going loved it. But it was the first thing in the foyer. And that's, I've started doing stand up comedy, and my last stand up was totally based around that waxwork because I realized my waxwork has been melted down somewhere, but they keep the heads, they keep the heads on shelves. And I looked up Wookiee Hole in Somerset. 
is just off the M5 somewhere. If you look up Wookie Hole, Madame Tussauds' heads, you'll see row upon row of decapitated heads. And I was horrified that my head was just there, nestled up with President Reagan and some ancient head of the Queen. And I just made it my mission as part of this stand-up comedy that I would find my head. So I go on this sort of rabbit warren. It's like Alice being down the rabbit hole, looking for my Madame Tussauds head. But it is weird that they do keep the heads. I mean, it's quite unsettling that, isn't it? That is quite unsettling. Archives everywhere of just heads thrown together. I love the fact you're doing comedy because, I mean, that's great material for your stand-up. What made you do the stand-up? It's because I have so many weird things in my life that lend themselves to stand. <laughs> so when Channel 4 came round to interview me for a documentary to ask me about my career, what it was like to be immortalised in wax, I have to say I rather basked in their attention. I mean, the legacy of that programme. Well, the interview was going well until the producer said... Annika, tell me, how do you feel now that you've been melted down? <laughs> anyone had told me I wasn't still hanging in the foyer. I felt a tiny bit lost. That waxwork had tied me to my old life. Suddenly, I didn't quite know who I was at all. Well, the documentary team had mentioned the caves at Wookiee Hole. Now, that's weird, because the last time I'd been there, I'd landed by helicopter, run into the caves, and done an elaborate magic trick with Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee. (laughs) I say telly in the 80s was weird. It was very easy for me to write it in a way because my, uh, you know, there are sort of very weird things in my life. On the Help My Heads in Wookie Hole, which was the last stand-up I did, I invited all these baby Annikas along. So when I was doing Challenge and Treasure Hunt, loads of people would name their child after me, which was incredibly flattering, and ask me to be godparent to them, <laughs> which I obviously declined. <laughs> but there were all these baby Annikas who are now in their 30s, so we had a group of them that came along. You know, weird, but they lend themselves to comedy so beautifully, don't they, if you think about it? They do. And also the other thing that lends itself to comedy about your life is is the spitting image skit. I mean, I am, you know, I did grow oh, up with Treasure God. Hunt and I loved Kenneth Kendall and I loved you zipping around oh. in your jumpsuit in the helicopter and finding the clues and everything. But spitting image did a, a very funny skit, didn't they, about you having a baby? Having a baby. There was a time in the 80s when I could not go past the television set without someone taking me off because I was just such a parody of myself, really. You know, Bobby Davro or whoever it was would just put on a jumpsuit and run around and get a laugh. It was that sort of time. And once I'm eight months pregnant with my first child and I just, the telly's on in the city room and I just hear to my horror the Treasure Hunt theme tune, which is always the precursor for anything that's about to happen. And my husband and I just looked at each other and sort of, they don't tell you they're doing this. So Do they not? Wandered into this, no, wandered into the city room and there I am sitting up in bed going, oh my goodness, I'm having a baby. And I ring Kenneth Kendall and then he springs out of bed and, okay, Annie, don't worry, you've got to find the hospital. And then I'm running through the streets. Um, I've got a jumpsuit on at this point, obviously, just going to everyone, I'm having a baby, where's the hospital? <laughs> and all the time, Kenneth is directing me there. And then I'm flat out on the hospital bed with all the nurses and he's going, don't panic, Annie. And I'm going, where is it now? And he's going, I think it's in the birth canal. And then out the baby comes, and out comes the film crew after the baby. (laughs) I think the cameraman still got to come out. And then it was just 
Very surreal, honestly. I showed it to my kids the other day because obviously back in the day, it wasn't like being able to just have everything on tap, you know, to watch again. If you didn't VHS it at the time or record it as it used to be called, there's no way of keeping this stuff. So I only realised that it was on YouTube very recently. So I showed it to my eldest son and said, this was you. This was me giving birth to you, which is quite traumatising for someone in their 30s. <laughs> I was going to say now they're grown, you've got three beautiful boys all around that sink, late 20s, early 30s mark. And I saw you grinning like a gibbon the other day because one of your sons has just got married, hasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. That was exciting. So we've yeah, just got through all that, which is very thrilling. Gosh, that's so lovely. And what else are you up to? It's so busy. It's hard to touch on everything that you're doing, have done oh. as Radio 2 and all sorts of things that I'm thinking. Well, I'm I'm doing a lot for Radio 4 at the moment. I occasionally co-host on Loose Ends and I've just been commissioned to do some more stand-up for them, which I'm really excited about. So that's, I've got to write it all this autumn and perform it next year. So that's my big sort of autumn project. And just so many other things I'm doing, painting commissions, bits of TV. So I think, yeah, it's all busy. It's all very busy in the Rice household. In the Rice household. And when you do your stand-up, can people come and see you do it or is it recorded sort of privately for radio? Yes, they can. No, no, they will be able to. So I'll put out on Instagram nearer the time when, yes, definitely. I'm at the first time I did it, as I say, I was in Bethnal Green at this sort of quite grungy club called the Backyard Comedy Club where people like Jack Whitehall, everyone had been and sort of cut their teeth and it was absolutely terrifying and all the family came along and I was just mortified that three people and a dog because it was on a Sunday evening, it was rainy, you know, I just thought that's not my demographic audience. They're not going to find their way to Bethnal Green. And my kids arrived and there were just queues going around the block. And so they thought, oh God, that's, you know, poor mum. That's everyone for another show. No one will be to see her. And then they realised they were queuing to see me. And it was just (laughs) such a lovely moment. I've never had anyone queue. (laughs) Oh, well, listen. And it was great fun. It was great fun. I'm sure some of our podcast listeners would love to come and queue. I'm going to come and see you do your comedy. I'll find out where you're going to be in the autumn. Uh, It's been so lovely to talk to you today. I feel like we could just go on forever. You've always got so much interesting going on in your life. And I always feel it's quite inspirational having a little chat with you. It's been lovely to delve into the past and talk about what you're doing. Oh, and last time we had the lovely Amit with you. I had Jack, my little boy, with me. And I think you found out from Jack that Amma is a very good friend of mine. And I went off for a swim in the sea. And when I came back, you were still on the phone to him. Oh, yes. Actually. You, you just said, talk to Amir. He'd love to chat. And I went, oh, OK, right. Never met this guy. But I'd seen him on the programme Pilgrimage and just loved him. You know, for those who don't know, he's blind. He's totally wonderful, warm human being. Anyway, we started to chat while you went off to have a swim. And you came back about an hour later and we're still chatting away. Oh, I just love that man. What a gentle soul. God, I love him. We'll have to get him down to the aisle, won't we? And, and swimming in the sea or something like that. Or yeah. maybe he'd pose for you. Well, there's a question. Yes. It doesn't, doesn't have to be men, Helen. No. Oh, looking, oh, at, looking at oh. you on our Zoom link. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, she says. Your husband about this. Yes, and he thanks so much for your time. It's been brilliant chatting, and uh, yes, I hope I'll see you very soon with clothes on or maybe off. Doesn't bother me. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the lovely Annika Rice sharing stories from Challenge Annika days, as well as chatting about all her current projects and her painting and beautiful Roy and everything really. Don't forget download and subscribe to our podcast series at convex.podbean.com or search the Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or just ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest, Clothes On. Bye for now. Thank you.